Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Andrew and I are delighted again to be able to be joined by Dan Diamond, who's a national health reporter for The Washington Post, focused on accountability, federal agencies, and public health. Dan, thank you, and welcome back. We really appreciate you making the time to be with us today. Stephen Andrew, thanks for having me back. These questions that, that I know are coming are always provocative and helpful to my reporting, so I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Let's start with one big theme, which is when we look out at the U.S. scientific, biomedical, and health public health leadership, the team has emptied as the emergency, as a public health emergency has ended. There's a generational turnover, Collins and Fauci. There's a mid-administration change. There's inevitable drawdown that comes when a, an emergency phase ends, but it's rather stark and dramatic. I mentioned Tony Fauci and Francis Collins. Ron Klain's gone. Ashish Jha, Rochelle Walensky, soon gone. Raj Punjabi, soon gone. A new team is slowly forming, Jeff Zients himself was the COVID coordinator, now the chief of staff to the president. Mandy Cohen is about to start her new duties as a CDC director in, in July. Monica Bertagnoli has been nominated for confirmation for NIH, and we've got a few leaders elsewhere. Tell us what your thoughts are on where's this processing, this process of reconstituting a new team likely to lead, and what special challenges are they going to face? Those are all good and big questions. So maybe we can talk first about the people and then about the policy and the challenges ahead. Let's take Mandy Cohen. Uh, I'm not surprised that President Biden hired her. I am surprised that she's going to be leading the CDC. I think that's a fascinating hire. If you look at recent CDC directors, usually it's an infectious disease expert, maybe even a CDC alum, Tom Frieden, Julie Gerberding, uh, more recently Robert Redfield, infectious disease expert. Mandy Cohen is a physician, but she's not an infectious disease specialist. She never worked as a CDC officer. She was in a bunch of senior roles in the Biden administration, working with Medicare and Medicaid. She led North Carolina's health department for about five years. And I had her, Steve, on my Politico podcast in 2017, in part because I, I believed that she could be the nation's next HHS secretary under a Democrat. And I know the Biden administration thought a lot about her in that path as HHS or maybe CMS, where her skill set with Medicare and Medicaid as department leader, that, that would have made a little more sense in terms of plug and play. But for CDC, the Biden administration really wanted a proven performer, someone who they believed could manage a large organization, could navigate the political and public pressure on CDC after some of Dr. Walensky's stumbles, communicating about COVID and working within the administration. And in terms of infectious disease expertise, there's a feeling that Dr. Cohen's two years leading North Carolina's COVID response was enough of a crash course. 
I asked Dr. Fauci, for instance, about Mandy Cohen, and he said she was among the more impressive state officers that he worked with during the pandemic. So while an unusual pick, the Biden administration, I think, would argue that she's the right pick for a very sensitive moment at CDC. One thing you're bringing back in terms of memory of her performance is she cut her teeth as a young talent during the health.gov crisis, right? She got brought in to be the deputy to uh, Andy Slavitt uh, in the midst of that, not the deputy, but as a young talent to work there. She cut her teeth in these urgent crises that required a lot of technical talent and skill, but a lot of awareness of the broader institutional and political environment. That's right. So healthcare.gov crashed. A decade ago, I had talked with Mandy Cohen about this. She said, I raised my hand right away and volunteered for that effort. She was less on the repair side, technically, and more on the policy side. But as a result of being involved in that, she was part of this larger uh, administration-wide effort that involved a younger Jeff Zients uh, and, and Andy Slavitt, who she ended up working with quite closely after healthcare.gov was, was up and running. Mandy Cohen ended up testifying on the Hill around healthcare.gov. So I think that stood her in good stead. The Biden administration feels like this is a person who can go to the Hill, go in front of Republican-led committees on the House side, and take tough questions on CDC, who has shown in her time in North Carolina an ability to work with Republicans on sensitive health policy. So it's an odd time. I mean, I was thinking about your question. We are two-thirds of the way through the presidential term. This is probably not the moment you'd want to see a major health shakeup, but it has been thought for a while that some change at CDC was coming, if, if not even necessary. My colleagues at The Post, uh, Lena Sun, who covers CDC quite well, and my colleague Tyler Pager, the great White House reporter, the three of us back in November or December had heard that there might be a CDC shakeup in the offing. The White House denied that said that they were happy with Dr. Walensky. But I, I think the turnover at the chief of staff level with Jeff Zions coming in and wanting to make his own mark on this health team, Mandy Cohen to me is a very Jeff Zions hire. They, they have some of that shared DNA going back to healthcare.gov. She has the technocratic approach that Jeff Zions likes. So it's, again, a weird moment in the administration to make this change. 18 months might not be a particularly long time to execute an agenda. But uh, the fact that it's coming is not surprising. You, you mentioned also NIH, Monica, uh, Monica Bertignoli, who I, I know a little bit less about. Have you ever dealt with her? I'm just, just curious. No, have not. Have not. I've just read about her. She's a cancer survivor. She heads NCI, so she's already gone through confirmation. She's much admired. She's, she's got some charisma. That's a promising choice, I think. I find Mandy Cohen a very promising and refreshing choice in, in terms of the emphasis on political acumen, ability to communicate clearly, ability to win over Republicans. All of those things are great credentials, it seems to me, for the current moment. What CDC is facing now is, unlike in my decade-plus career covering healthcare, uh, I've, I've seen CDC faced with the pressure from the Hill, the questions about the agency that, that go beyond Republicans, Democrats, independents, the average person has questions about how reliable is CDC and its information. But, but I, I think, Steve, one thing that you're getting to with your question about this turnover of the health team, who is going to be the face when there is inevitably another public health crisis? I think it's 
it's fair to say that in the next 18 months, there probably will be something. Over the past decade, there was Ebola, there was Zika, there was COVID, the list goes on. Every year or two, there is some new threat. Is, is Mandy Cohen going to be the one going before the American people and communicating this? There's no Tony Fauci. There's no Ashish Jha. There, there aren't obvious candidates to articulate the U.S. health policy in a way that there might have been six months ago. And just as importantly, Dan, there's got to be a coherent whole of government communication strategy, which has been severely lacking across this administration and the past administration before it. Absolutely. And, and Andrew, I think one of the challenges had been the quarterback for a health strategy could be the health secretary, the HHS secretary. And at the beginning of this administration, Javier Becerra wasn't in seat right away. When he came in, he wasn't plugged into the COVID response closely. Now, in some irony, he is like the last man standing. <laughs> He's the stable member of the team. So would, would the HHS secretary be the quarterback for a unified response if there is another public health threat in six months, 12 months? I think that's something I'll be watching. Well, they're going to have to get it uh, tight and together because, you know, as you mentioned before, Congress is a whole other animal here. It's a whole other matter. Pressures on public health and scientific institutions like CDC are intensifying from the right, but also from the left at a time when it's really important to reauthorize PEPFAR and also the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act. What do you see in terms of Congress going forward and how the administration is going to be able to effectively or not effectively interact. There are three committees that I probably spend the most time watching. One is the Senate Health Committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, led by Bernie Sanders uh, with, with Bill Cassidy as the top Republican. Second is Energy and Commerce in the House. McMorris Rogers is the Republican leader. Pallone is the top Democrat. And then there, there's also the Oversight Subcommittee probing the COVID response. I have had long conversations with Chairman Brad Wenstrup, the Republican who leads that committee or subcommittee, and Congressman Raul Ruiz, who's the top Democrat. So when I think about the Biden administration and those three panels, their purview, what they're pushing, it has been interesting to watch the unique dynamics of each. For instance, this COVID uh, subcommittee. I don't know at this point, Andrew, how many people are still watching the COVID probes. There are a lot of Americans who have tuned out all questions around the COVID response. But I, I think that panel is raising important questions. What was the administration's early response to COVID? What were the policies that were put in place around vaccination? What did this White House and the last one know about the possible origins of COVID? I don't think the Biden administration has really wanted any of those probes, because even if there's a good faith effort to explore, say, the origin of the coronavirus, this White House is very worried that Republicans in Congress will use that opening to push through and pursue probes that could be very damaging to the overall administration. So I think the White House has been very tentative about engaging on, on some of the coronavirus subcommittee questions. PAPA and PEPFAR, meanwhile, these two big legislative vehicles, both have had some complications. And what happens next with them has been a bit of an open question. PAPA, the reauthorization, has run into stumbles in, in both the House and the Senate. In the House, Democrats have pushed for more of a focus on supply chain issues. They've said that the pandemic has illustrated the need for a stronger medical supply chain, so we're not caught unawares if there's another crisis. Republicans have 
not wanted to deal with some of that supply chain legislation. They say they want to focus more narrowly and keep Papa from becoming a Christmas tree, essentially, with lots of different wish list items. Uh, so that has been a, a breakdown a bit on the House side. On the Senate side, there's frustration more broadly with how Bernie Sanders is chairing the health committee and whether he is using his platform to pursue Bernie Sanders' priorities and not so much pursue priorities that are under the purview of, of the help committee. The House is much farther ahead on the work of reauthorizing PAPA than the Senate is. And PAPA expires September 30th. We're talking late June. So there's not a lot of time uh, for the Senate to pursue its legislative markup. It's, it's continuing work on PAPA ahead of that reauthorization that's getting kind of tight. Just to intervene for a minute here on PAPA, it could get extended for a couple of months and that's not going to be a heartbreaker. But the there is a window, it seems to me, a window for passage on a bipartisan basis if they can keep it very lean and have the discipline to postpone consideration of all those other things that re will require a lot more time and a lot more deliberation. So, Steve, you think that the Democrats bringing up supply chain legislation detracts from the effort to reauthorize PAPA? I think anything that requires a deep investigation and, and deep deliberations is going to be a showstopper. And so there's got to be some kind of compromise that says, okay, in order to get this through as a clean bill, let's be disciplined these other issues sets are very important and we're going to pursue them, but let's not get locked into an, a, a very long-term delay. We've had that before with Papa. There's been, you know, there's been some hard lessons learned in the past. Other thing I just wanted to mention, and then I know Andrew has some, is that the House, the House Oversight Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, it's been very divided, but it's also had some profound impacts. I mean, the focus early on in the hearings on COVID origins led to that almost unanimous passage of legislation signed by the president in both chambers, then signed by the president, around declassifying what we know about the Wuhan Institute. And uh, as I think you indicated, that declassification is going to come forward likely in the next few days. Right. We're speaking on Tuesday afternoon. There is expected to be a release of some declassified COVID intelligence in the coming days. Could be compelling. I don't know if it will be convincing. My my early expectation is that it will probably just strengthen both sides of the debate. There will be evidence that uh, folks who believe the virus came from a lab will be able to point to, and there will be evidence that folks who think it was a natural origin will be able to cite as well. But that panel, Steve, I think the questions that the Republicans have raised have often been uncomfortable, but they're not wrong to push on some of these points. And the issue of biosecurity, whether or not COVID was a lab leak or not, one of the takeaways from the pandemic response for me has been, this is an issue that needs further scrutiny moving forward. Dan, I just want to go back to the shift of opinion against NIH and CDC, which is clearly unprecedented. You mentioned that at the top of your remarks. What does this portend for this administration and this Congress in trying to make these institutions as effective as they can be um, going into some really critical years for both institutions. Andrew, I think in the near term, 
it means that talented people might not want to go work for these organizations. It makes them weaker. It makes their work product uh, less good. And worst case scenario, we're hit with another crisis. The brands are so damaged that more people ignore public health advice and die unnecessarily. I thought it was very interesting to see what happened recently with the cloud of, of smoke covering the eastern seaboard. New York City public health officials encouraged residents to wear masks. I'm sure there were some residents who said, well, wait, I've heard all of these things about masks not being effective with COVID. Why do I need to wear a mask now? Or why should I listen to public health officials at all? I don't know if there's been any early polling or response about that, but that's been on my mind as something I've wanted to explore, whether uh, when there is a new crisis and the same public health experts are trotting to the podium, have they lost any power in their messaging? Thanks. You were going to say a little bit more about the declassification. I wanted to focus on, do you think it's possible this declassification is going to reveal Chinese military link to what was going on at the Wuhan Institute? When you think about what they may reveal, almost every additional layer of investigation has failed to conclusively determine whether it was one or the other, lab leak or a zoonotic spillover. I would expect that the declassification won't solve that problem, but it could change the whole politics of this if it shows a connection to the Chinese military. Sure, sure. I, I think it's certainly possible that there could be a smoking gun that changes what we think about COVID. And to your question about the progress of, say, PAPA legislation in Congress, if there was some COVID bombshell that changed U.S. political debate, that would have ramifications, I think, for the progress of major legislation. You could see lawmakers trying to use PAPA to, to make a bigger point, which has mostly not happened so far. I don't know exactly what to expect about the COVID declassification, Steve. I'm also wary that if I make a prediction on Tuesday afternoon and <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday the release happens, uh, I, I could look um, even more foolish than, than uh, reporters often do. But, but it strikes me too things that have guided my thinking about, about COVID origins really from the beginning, uh, since January 2020. First, back then, reliable sources were telling me that there was high-level concern and even belief that it might have been a lab leak. So that has been my prior throughout, that serious people before this became politicized thought the potential for a lab leak was real. So I've, I've never wanted to ignore that, and it has continued to inform my thinking. Second, in the lead up to this declassification, I had asked various sources in and close to the government what to expect. And as I generally heard, this was going to be a partial declassification, despite the hopes that there would be even more information revealed, because a full declassification would have put sources and methods at risk. So I, I think if there are bombshells out there, there's a good chance that they still would not be published for risk of burning sources and creating intelligence problems in the future. Thank you. Let's talk about the campaigns that are unfolding. and the presidential campaigns, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made the fight against Fauciism, as he calls it, a dominant theme, twinned with his pledge to fight wokeism everywhere. And Trump and other candidates are echoing this theme and making it a dominant part of the presidential race. On the Democratic side, we've got RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's put his hat in the Democratic ring. And he is, as a longstanding prominent anti-vaxxer, he's attracting lots of donations. He's attracted millions, and he's drawn support from Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, Stephen Bannon, and others. What does this all mean, in your view, as we're staring into a, this new political cycle? 
Nothing good for public health. I've spoken with some of the parents who were politically activated about school closures and some of the Americans who were upset about public health policies. And I think, Steve, there's a lot more energy around anger about COVID-related policies and toward the public health establishment than energy and, and people who are newly mobilized to defend public health. It reminds me of the old Washington line. It's easier to play offense than defense. Some of that is manifesting in the ranks of young doctors, for instance. There was a lot of attention earlier in the pandemic on the so-called Fauci effect. I'm I'm making air quotes with my my fingers that you and Andrew can see. But the idea that there would be new blood, new doctors getting into the field because they were so motivated by Tony Fauci and they wanted to be junior versions. But more recently, there's been coverage of the young doctors who don't want to go into infectious disease specialties. I I recall a good piece in uh, Stat about this. So the burnout is real, not just among current workers in public health, but just general attitude toward public health. And it makes me wonder about how this field strengthens its hand in the next five or 10 years. I think, Steve, you have made this point to me that entering COVID, there was the hope that this would would supercharge public health in good ways. And if anything, public health is leaving this crisis weaker. Is that fair? And we're not seeing a mobilization to a counter mobilization to defend. It's what we're seeing as an incentive on the side of Democrats to just not talk about this stuff in the same way. There's there's a passivity or a quiescence that we see that leaves the field even more open for people who are extremists, conspiracy thinkers, engaging in in you know rampant falsehoods to get out there and and drive the debate. Steve, that's a really good point on the RFK Jr. piece. You know, if Democrats aren't talking about this and he's the Democrat who is, look at what we have. It also is making me think about the Biden administration's choices here. To your point, Steve, about what they're saying and and not. If you look at the policy issues that President Biden has inherited or or that he works on, I'm pretty sure that his COVID response polls about as well as anything. It might be his top polling issue. And he had, as his COVID coordinator, a guy who was seen as an incredibly good communicator, Ashish Jha, who who had been on TV for two years before joining the Biden administration. But Ashish Jha was not put out by the Biden administration on TV very much in recent months. The Biden administration has mostly avoided talking about COVID, even though if you ask most Americans, they're generally happy with the Biden response and think that the world has largely returned to normal. There could be a very aggressive affirmative case around that, and the Biden administration has just skated past it. Do you think that's because there's such COVID fatigue out there? No one really wants to talk about it. People just want to move on. Or is there something else we're missing? I think it's that in part, Andrew, that reminding people of COVID is not seen as a winning issue. And I think the second piece is that the Biden administration has been burned before. The current White House chief of staff, Jeff Zients, had told administration officials, thought this could be wrapped up by summer of 2021. Obviously, was not the case. Hope again that COVID could be a rearview issue by the end of 2021. Then we got Omicron. So I I think the Biden administration is wary of taking victory laps. And and we had a scoop some weeks ago that experts warned the administration there could be a one in five chance of another uh, crisis around COVID on on par with Omicron, that there could be some variant 
that emerges and really challenges the health system. So I, I think that's probably what's keeping them in check, uh, the attitudes and also the uh, been burned before and don't want to be burned again. I mean, the reality is that President Biden cannot ignore a lunatic in the in the living room for that much longer. Right. If RFK Jr. is polling at 17 to 20 percent and is taking in six million dollars in the first week in donations and is amping it up and not pulling back, you know, getting support from all these crazy directions, Steve Miller, Stephen Bannon, it does cause enormous discomfort politically within the Democratic Party. And we haven't seen how that's going to play itself out. Yeah. I mean, we're still, what, 500 days out from the election. So if RFK is a serious threat enough that he's continuing to poll at high levels in three months, six months, I'm sure there will be a concerted response. At this moment, it's it's early. We've seen candidates flare on and, and flare off in recent years. I mean, Herman Cain at one point, wasn't he polling probably comparable, if not better than RFK is right now in the Republican primary? So I, I just think that there are political comments that come and go. I don't know if RFK is is one of them. I think that's a good point. This may be a short-term issue, but maybe not. We don't know. I mean, or he migrates off into some other some other zone with the base of support that he has. I mean, when you've got Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey taking you up and giving you platforms, that's that's profound. That's really profound. Well, you have to wonder where the motivation's coming from, Steve, right? You know, who are the donors? You mentioned yeah. Miller, Bannon, Musk, Dorsey. You know, where is this all coming from with RFK Jr.? So something to watch. But, you know, hey, is this really serious among Democrats for Democratic primary voters? You know, we'll have to see. Yep. Yep. So, Dan, uh, we're in this fundamentally new phase here, post-public health emergency. What are your reflections on what this all means to be a reporter covering health? In Washington, D.C.? I don't know this for sure, but I would bet that I, I am among the reporters who wrote the most COVID stories these past number of years, Stephen Andrew. I was at Politico for the first year of the pandemic, where I wrote the daily newsletter with my buddy Adam Kenkren, and I also wrote stories. So I probably had conservatively 300 bylines related to COVID <laughs> that year, uh, plus two years now at the Post. So I, I have hundreds of stories about COVID and, and the rearview mirror. I would very much like to not have as much COVID coverage in the near future. I am trying to broaden my horizons a bit. There are stories that have been on my list for two years plus that I've, I've wanted to get to. But it's disappointing and, and depressing, I think, to be at a moment when the public health emergency is behind us. And yet Americans have such strong disagreement over what we've learned, if anything at all, that there are deep disagreements about where to move forward. There's no hope at this point, really, for a bipartisan COVID commission in the way that we had a 9-11 commission that helped give us uh, some, some momentum moving forward. So I, I, I think it's, it's a mix of a hopeful feeling that I can do things that aren't just COVID, but regret that the COVID situation has been so disappointing and troublesome, even, even with the public health emergency over COVID is obviously not gone and still poses a threat to immunocompromised folks, uh, older Americans, and so on. Thank you. Uh, Dan, we close all of these podcasts by asking our guests to tell us what gives you greatest hope and optimism in this period. So what's your answer for this podcast? This may be beyond the scope of the podcast, but we have a young baby and my wife and I are delighting in him, even as he is exhausting us and, and uh, eating us alive in the ways that a young baby can. 
what is giving me hope? Should I just leave it with, with my uh, lovely son and how much uh, affection I have for him? I'd be fine with that. I think that's great. I have to tell you, Dan, I went to my daughter's graduation from business school a, a week ago, and there were no fewer than three graduating master's in business administration students who crossed the stage carrying an infant. It was pretty profound. It was pretty profound. It was very moving, actually. It shades everything for me. Uh, I I feel like being a reporter, a good skill can be stepping back and being removed from the world. You want to have a critical eye on things. And being a dad makes it harder to do that. You're more invested in the world. <laughs> you care very much about local issues in a way that you might not have before. So I'm hopeful that that it makes me a better human. Uh, I, I don't know if having a, a young child is making me a better reporter this year. I've had to give up on phone calls and chasing stories that a year ago I would have been able to pursue. But that's okay. That's a good trait. As a father of three, and Steve's a father of one, I, I can speak for Steve. It's the best thing going. So you're doing the right thing. You know, after we get off the phone, uh, I, I go pick up my son every day. And that is, that is a highlight of the day. So, Thank you, Dan. Keep up the great work. Thanks for being so generous with us. I'm always thrilled to do this. And the questions about Papa in particular are making me think that I might need to do a Papa story. So appreciate it, Andrew. Steve, thanks for having me. Thanks, right. Dan. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.